0: We'll hear argument next in number ninety-three thirteen eighteen, Interstate Commerce Commission versus TransConline. Thank
1: Spectators
0: are admonished not to talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session.
2: Mr. Wallace. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Since 1920, the Interstate Commerce Act has prohibited common carriers from delivering freight on credit, except pursuant to regulations uh, adopted by the Interstate Commerce Commission governing credit transactions and that prohibition was extended to motor carriers when they came under the ICC's jurisdiction in the Motor Carrier Act of 1935. Uh, Prior thereto, it was focused on railroads, of course. The ICC first adopted credit regulations in 1920, and from 1920 until 1988, those regulations contained no authorization of liquidated damages for late payment of uh, freight charges. The only authorized remedy was to collect the prescribed rate uh, for a timely payment plus interest for the delay. In rulemakings, in the late 1980s, um, the ICC, for the first time at the behest of the American Trucking Association uh, and other carrier interests, uh, authorized liquidated damages for collection expense charges um, in the regulations. Um, And those are set forth uh, beginning at page 83A of uh, uh, the appendix to our petition, um, subpart G of the regulations, entitled Collection Expense Charges. In an amicus brief filed in our support by the um, uh, uh, health and Personal Care Distribution Conference and some other shipping associations on page 4 and 5, the course of the rulemaking proceedings uh, is recounted uh, and the citations are given. Uh, the, the shipping interests were, of course, participants and quite concerned about unfairness to them that may eventuate. And because of that, uh, the ICC included initially uh, in the 1988 regulations and added in the revised regulations in 1989 certain conditions for the collection of these liquidated damages which, uh, it is undisputed, were not complied with in this uh, case. Th- those include from... Uh, uh, beginning with um, the provision that was in the original 1988 uh, regulations and was retained uh, a uh, requirement uh, that the original bills advise shippers of the consequence of late payment. That is set forth on page 86A, um, it's uh, subpart uh, C. Um, uh, and the two provisions that were added in 1989 to further uh, protect uh, shippers from the unfair practices uh, are uh, set forth um, uh, first on page 85A, and that is subpart g 2 Six that revised bills have to be uh, issued uh, uh, within a 90-day period after the original credit period had expired. That also, admittedly, was not complied with. And then on page 84, subpart little 3 of G2, uh, it, it says that the um, loss of uh, of uh, discount or the liquidated damages can be, cannot be applied on an aggregated basis but can only be applied on separate and independent freight bills uh, there are obviously. Uh, great economies of scale and aggregate collections, and there was concern that aggregate collections would be made, particularly after carriers became insolvent, and there's a specific reference in that provision to a bankruptcy trustee uh, attempting to collect on an aggregate basis. So what we are concerned with here is... Uh, uh, an effort that was made by respondent, as the trustee for this insolvent carrier, uh, to bill shippers from several years earlier uh, and collect uh, additional payments, including these very heavy liquidated damage charges, an effort that was specifically foreseen by the Commission in adopting the regulations authorizing credit transactions And
3: Clarify for me uh, what this, what you've been calling the liquidated damages, which the uh, respondents call the bureau rate. When other than in the context of liquidated damages for failure to pay on time, would this bureau rate apply? And in connection with that, what rate would apply to someone who is shipping these same goods on these same routes who pays – on delivery, who doesn't get credit terms, that wouldn't be the bureau rate, would it? would be
2: some... Oh. That, that is correct. It would be the same discount rate that applies to the credit transactions, plus there can be a service charge for the delayed payment in the but, but wouldn't... I'm, I'm
3: positing no delay in payment. Uh, wouldn't there be something even more favorable than the discounted rate? The shipper who pays on delivery, who's not asking even for 30 days...
2: Is that, also that could be, and as far as I'm aware, was the same discount rate, although there might be some further discount for cash payment, which is not reflected in anything I've read in this case. Perhaps uh, Mr. Gumport could clarify that.
3: So does the Bureau rate, it certainly doesn't apply to one who pays promptly, does it apply to anything other than...
2: This liquid, as a liquidated damage? As so far as I am aware, it does not. There's no indication that it does. I, it, it is not, it, it is a source from which the real rates, the real filed rates are, uh, uh, the discount rates, it's a source from which the discount rates are calculated. So that it, it is, it's a source, it's a rate bureau source that. Um, uh, that determines the proportionality of what are the real rates, which are the discount rates. And the only way that this record reflects that those rates come into play at all is not as what I think are accurately regarded as rates for transportation, but as the measure of the liquidated damages for collection costs that is authorized uh, under these uh, regulations, under the collection expense charges in uh, uh, little point 2 at the top of page 84a of the appendix. That is one method of calculating liquidated damages that is authorized uh, under this rule if the rule is complied with. Now, the rule was designed specifically uh, to forestall um, precisely the problem that arose here by conditioning the availability of these liquidated damage charges on compliance with certain safeguards for the shippers. Could the trustee, uh, in an
4: action brought by the shipper, raise this as a defense?
2: Well, uh, ordinarily, it's it's the other way around, that it occurs. The shippers uh, have made their payments and would not be bringing an action. Um, It's the trustee who is trying to get uh, additional payments from the shippers through the bankruptcy proceedings. He has made claims against them, um, and... Uh, the uh, this court 's uh, holding in southern pacific transport uh, transportation company against commercial metals suggests that the shippers cannot themselves raise a defense and we have briefed the case on that in, in, assumption
4: well I was going to ask you, do you have a position as to whether or not the defense is available in the action itself we, we
2: We have briefed the case on the assumption that it would not be available to the shippers under the rationale of the commercial metals case. But I I think in candor an argument could be made that commercial metals should not extend that far because uh, what was uh, directly involved in commercial metals was an effort not to pay the transportation rate itself. if If it's an invalid rate... Then under our, our Kmart line, or under the Kmart
4: case, uh, it would seem to me there's just a non-enforceable rate in, in the court. And, and it would seem to me that that would almost have to be the premise if, if you are to prevail here. I, I'm not quite sure why there should be a difference.
2: Well, we we do take some solace from the Kmart case, but I don't want to overdraw the analogy because the court determined there that there was no valid filed rate. There was a rate that could be ascertained from tariff filings, and the court said that that could not prevail over a violation of the commission's regulations, and in that way the case is very analogous to our case. Uh, but commercial metals held in the context of an effort by the shipper not to pay the transportation charge at all, the transportation rate, that the shipper could not raise that as a defense. Uh, that um, if uh, there's to be a challenge to it because of violation of the a uh, commission's credit regulations, and that is the only case of this court that deals with a claim of violation of the credit regulations. That is to be enforced in the courts by the ICC. The reason, I think, that an argument could be made by shippers that commercial uh, metals doesn't extend as far as this case is because, in this case, what is thought to be collected is not the rate for transportation or services that the statute requires to be in a tariff as a rate filing. That rate is what uh, would be payable uh, in the transaction if the payment were made promptly, uh, plus whatever interest there would be uh, for a delay in payment, precisely what the ICC's requested injunction would limit the trustee to collecting here. What is thought to be collected in addition are these liquidated Damages called collection expense charges uh, authorized by the regulation, beginning on page 83A, which are in the tariff, but not because the uh, statutes requiring the rates for transportation or services require it to be in the tariff. Um, those uh, statutes we've uh, set forth um, in our brief uh, on page 74A and 75A of the appendix petition. But instead, it's because the regulation itself requires that those liquidated damage rates be in the tariff. They're entirely a creature of the regulation, and that is uh, on 84A of the petition appendix, under 2, then uh, small uh, 1 shall be described in the tariff rule, and small 2 says shall be applied without unlawful prejudice and or unjust discrimination. Those requirements are creatures of the regulation, just as the authorization to collect these charges at all are creatures of the regulation. And the Commission, as I started to say at the outset, is acting in an area where Congress expressly relied on the Commission's regulations to set the rule, Congress proscribed altogether any credit uh, transactions here, except pursuant to regulations which the Commission may adopt. So the Commission was acting really at the zenith of its regulatory powers in fulfilling a mandate that Congress expressly relied on the Commission and only the Commission to fulfill here. So regardless of whether the shippers could raise a defense, what commercial metals looked to was uh, an even more venerable provision of the uh, Act um, that dates back to the original Interstate Commerce Act in 1887. The statutory authority for the commission uh, to bring an enforcement action in federal Court And uh, uh, the court in commercial metals emphasized that that could be an injunctive action to enforce the credit regulations. Uh, it should be remembered that at the time of the commercial metals decision in 1982, the credit regulations did not yet authorize uh, this liquidated damages for the cost of collection and the only uh uh defense being made by the shipper was uh, a defense not to have to pay the filed rate for transportation itself so um, there might have been uh uh anticipation that the commission would be unlikely uh to bring an injunctive action which would say that the carrier should not be paid at all for the transportation, not uh, even uh, in the circumstance where the carrier did not fully comply with the credit regulations. But at least, uh, as the Court interpreted the Act, uh, that was to be left to the Commission's enforcement authority rather than an equitable defense by the shippers. Well. Since the conditions admittedly were not complied with for assessing the liquidated damages, it might seem obvious in light of commercial metals and the Commission's enforcement authority in uh, 49 U.S.C. 11702 that I've referred to, that um, uh, the Commission's action to enjoin this belated effort of the trustee, um, acting in perfect good faith to try to enhance the value of the estate, to enjoin this effort uh, to uh, 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 collect liquidated damages when these uh, uh, very carefully constructed conditions had not been complied with to the obvious prejudice of the shippers uh, 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 whom the conditions were designed to protect and that the, uh, trustee, uh, standing in the shoes of Transcon should be relegated to the historic remedy that existed from 1920 to 1988 of Uh, the uh, transportation charge plus interest for any lateness in the payment, obviously a remedy that could not be said to be incompatible with the Act. The Court of Appeals, however, said no, uh, that that rather obvious conclusion should not be reached because of uh, the filed rate doctrine uh, as it understood that doctrine to have been applied by this court in Maislin Industries against primary steel. Now we think that this was misconceived by the Court of Appeals from the outset and the first thing to be said is that Maislin, in contrast to this case, involved an effort to enforce an unfiled rate. The negotiated rate, which was never filed but under uh, the Commission's then negotiated rates policy, was to be enforced in preference to the actual filed rate. And Mayslin itself, in footnote 11 of uh, the Mayslin opinion, pointed out that the case was therefore different from prior uh, decisions of the court, uh, which, uh, in which the question was which of two filed rates should be applied, rather than an effort to depart from the filed uh, rate schedule altogether. And we think that that footnote uh, applies a fortiori in this case because here it's not a choice between two filed rates for transportation, it's a choice between the filed rate for transportation, which the Commission says the trustee is entitled to, and this other charge of liquidated damages, that is not a a filed rate for transportation within the meaning of the statutes that require rates for transportation and services to be provided, but as I previously explained, is entirely a creature of the regulations which is required to be in the tariff only because the regulations require it to be in the tariff. Um, That is uh, the source of the obligation. And Uh, Then this Court decided uh, Ryder against Cooper after the Court of Appeals' initial decision, decision, which we thought made the error more manifest because Ryder established quite clearly the principle that uh, Maislin did not mean that uh, the uh, Uh, filed-rate doctrine would uh, uh, preclude claims and defenses that are specifically accorded by the Act itself, such as the Commission's express statutory authority to bring an action for an injunction uh, to enforce its credit regulations. So when we petitioned for certiorari for the first time in this case, we suggested Uh, that the judgment be vacated and the case remanded for reconsideration in light of Ryder against Cooper, um, which is the course that the Court took. But on remand, uh, the Court of Appeals reached the same conclusion, basically holding that the ICC statutory enforcement authority should be subordinated to its view of the filed rate doctrine, which Wallace, is.
3: Wallace, did that occur in the Ninth Circuit after reargument and new, fresh briefing? Or, or when the response to Ryder.
2: It was rebriefed, I'm told. I, I, I have to. That's enough from and, the. And re-argued uh,
3: before the same. Not reargued, just rebriefed. Not
2: reargued, just rebriefed, apparently. Um, so um, it seemed to us that what the court held was uh, really to the contrary of Ryder, that the express statutory provision should be subordinated to the court's view of the filed rate doctrine, which is just the opposite of the way the court uh, came out in, in Ryder. And it also, um, in its rationale uh, on remand, it seemed to us the court intruded into and and effectively nullified the ICC's enforcement discretion with respect to what remedy it can uh, seek among the remedies expressly given to the Commission uh, for the credit regulation violations. Um, and the Ninth Circuit said, well, other remedies will suffice, but those... Other remedies, while they might suffice against operating characters, uh, carriers because of their prospective nature, would be of little assistance, if any, in the context of the trustee in bankruptcy who is uh, uh, trying to done uh, uh, shippers for these charges years after the shipment.
0: Miss, Mr. Wallace, uh, I, I'm not sure I quite understand what the government's position is regarding uh, provisions that are in rate filings because they are required to be there by these regulations. Are, 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 is it your position that somehow they do not enjoy the protections that other provisions of the rates
2: uh, enjoy? Well, I, 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 I wouldn't say quite that they don't enjoy the protections, uh, but it is important that they're not required by statute to be f- uh, uh, filed rates that govern rather than any contract. To the contrary, uh, uh, the payment for transportation and services and, um, Aren't there a are, number of
0: things that uh, that might be optionally included in rates, uh, but do not have to be included in rates?
2: We think that these are rules relating to the rates rather than rates themselves, rules about what is to be done in the non-payment. But part of uh, the relevance of this in the case is that respondents are arguing, uh, in some of their amiki that there would be a, a discrimination. Uh, if these rates were not even-handedly applied to all shippers, even though long after the fact, and even though there were violations of these uh, regulations. But uh, the, the prohibition because on... Because dis- of enforcement discretion? Because you could move against some and not against others? Well, there's, there, I don't want to make their argument for them, but, but what I'm trying to point out is that the prohibition against unjust discrimination that is involved here is only the prohibition in the Commission's own regulations, which uh, the Commission has uh, 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 is entitled to considerable deference in construing, since these charges are entirely a creature of these regulations to begin with. Uh, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time, if I may.
0: Very well, Mr. Wallace. Uh, Mr. Gumpert. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court.
5: The Government concedes in its brief in this Court that the loss of discount tariff provision is lawful. The Government also concedes in its brief in this Court that the regulations still do not create a defense to payment of the filed rate assertable by shippers. This is therefore a simple Case because Congress has explicitly addressed the issue in the statute. It's much easier than Maislin. The carrier, unless and until this tariff is rendered ineffective, set aside, or suspended, must, under pain of civil and criminal penalties, enforce the conceitedly lawful loss-of-discount tariff provision. The government's position to the contrary, is contradicted by the express language of the statute. It's contradicted by the legislative history of the statute. It's contradicted by the decisions of this court from the 1907 Texas Abilene decision through this court's 1994 decision last term in MCI telecommunications. And it's contradicted by the ICC's own interpretation of its credit regulations. Now,
3: if you read the filed rate, as the discounted rate and the liquidated, what you call the Bureau rate, what they call the liquidated damage provision, if you read that as simply a credit term, not the filed rate, the rate is the discounted rate. Then, if you don't pay up on time, there's this liquidated damage provision. Justice Ginsburg,
5: if one could reasonably do that, that would be right but in this case it is impossible to do that and there's at least four reasons why it's impossible first of all the tariff is unambiguous there's no dispute that under the express terms of the tariff a shipper is not entitled to the discount unless it pays the tariff charge within 90 days and only then Only then is it entitled to the discount. And when certain shipper amici tried to argue to the contrary, they had to change the language of the tariff to make that argument.
3: Why shouldn't the Commission's own rules be treated as a supplement to the tariff, since admittedly you can have this higher rate, euro rate, liquidated damage rate, you can have it only by virtue of the credit provisions. So why not say, as a supplement to this tariff, we read in the ICC conditions for getting the liquidated damages. Put it in the bill, 90 days passes, send them another notice. Why shouldn't those ICC credit regulations, in effect, be treated as a supplement to the tariff?
5: There are several reasons, Your Honor. First of all, it's contrary to this court's decision in Davis versus Portland C, where the, a, a carrier had filed a tariff that contained a higher rate for the shorter route than for the longer route, and the tariff was arguably unlawful on its face. It was contrary to the express provisions of the statute, and this Court said it doesn't matter. It's the filed rate, unless and until the ICC suspends or sets it aside. That, that, that was for
0: the purpose of, the, of, of a defense by the, uh, uh, by the shipper, isn't that right? Not yes, for purposes of suit by somebody else. It seems to me it just can't be that the Interstate Commerce Act means anything that you put, you know, any provision you put in your rate filing uh, has to be executable. I mean, suppose you say, uh, you know, any, any shipper who doesn't pay within 90 days, uh, uh, the CEO shall be shot. Uh, you're going to say, well, there it is. It's in the filed rate. The ICC didn't get around to striking it down, so uh, we have to go ahead and perform it. I mean, obviously, it's unlawful, and it, and, and you can't perform it. Your Honor... First of all, the ICC
5: could retroactively reject that kind of tariff, it could reject it, it could suspend it, could suspend it and that is not this But case. until
0: it did that, uh, you, you, uh, you, you were entitled to go ahead and execute the contract. It in fact, obliged you, to it. What, your, your Honor, if you... Let's take your hypothetical, precisely your hypothetical. If that
5: was executed and somebody was killed under the terms of the tariff provision, there would be criminal penalties for doing that, and indeed, in Maizlin, in the
0: Maizlin decision... You have criminal penalties for complying with federal law. You're, you're telling me that you're obliged to, uh, to perform that contract by the, uh, by, by, by the uh, legislation. Yes. It's, it's there in the rate and it hasn't been set aside by the ICC. Your Honor, it's a question... Really, I mean, the, 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 I, I think the law against murder is just a state law, and this is a federal law. It's too prestigious. Your Honor,
5: it's a question of remedy, because in the Maizlin case, there was no question, and the court pointed out in footnote 12 of its decision, that if the carrier was lying to shippers about what its real rates were, it was a crime. And nevertheless, in Maysland, the court held that the ICC could not have a valid policy which created a remedy that operated to prevent the carrier from enforcing its filed rate. And in this case, we don't dispute that the ICC has a remedy. The ICC could criminally prosecute People who knowingly extended credit in violation of its regulations. We don't dispute that. With but the- here
3: there is another rate, and that does make it different. Your Honor, let me... Let, me, re- let, let me ask you, uh, just to clarify this point, which I, I think is clear, but if it's not, tell me. The only reason that you can have this two-track system, the discounted rate, which applies originally and the liquidated damage rate. The only reason you can have that liquidated damage uh, rate is because of the ICC's credit regulations.
5: We disagree, Your Honor. Where do you get the
3: authority to put in the two-track system other than the credit regulations?
5: Your Honor, there is nothing in the regulations of the ICC that says you can't have a loss of discount tariff provision except under our credit regulations. There is nothing in those regulations that say that. Nothing at all. Let me return to your earlier question. Please
3: clarify for me then the extent to which you disagree with Mr. Wallace who said this was not possible until that 80s rulemaking. Until then, you got the interest uh, for late payment. It was only that rulemaking that brought in the credit regulations, and one way of calculating the uh, liquidated damages was having this additional tariff. Is it that you had these two track systems, the discounted rate and the higher rate, before there were any credit regulations?
5: Your Honor, in 1985, the ICC authorized the filing of tariffs giving discounts for early payment. And in that 1985 regulatory decision, they said, we're not sure you can do this, but we're now specifically authorizing you to do it. This denial of discount, I would submit, is no different.
3: So... I, I'm sorry, I don't know that you've answered my question. Did you were there these two track tariff systems before the eighty rulemaking?
5: Your Honor, I don't know. Let me return to your question as to whether there are two filed rates. There's only one filed rate. The ICC, in its 1988 decision authorizing the filing of loss-of-discount tariff provisions, said that under the filed rate doctrine, the carrier must enforce the loss of discount tariff provision. In the trial court, before Judge Hill heard the issue that he disposed of by summary judgment, he specifically asked the ICC's counsel whether it agreed that the loss of discount tariff provision, which is a part of the rules tariff, whether the ICC agreed that the rules tariffs were a part of the carrier's filed rate within the meaning of line. And the ICC's counsel responded, yes, I don't take issue with that. The ICC also put in a declaration from a tariff expert, Mr. Manning, on November 8, 1991, in support of its cross-motion for summary judgment. And he said in his declaration that Transcon's TCON 625, which is the discount tariff, is governed by Transcon's TCON 103, which is the rules tariff, in which the loss of discount tariff provision appears. So there is no dispute, and there was no dispute in the trial court, and the evidence was only on one side on this issue, that this loss of discount tariff provision governs the rate. It sets the rate. You you don't
0: consider it a um, a liquidated damages provision? It's just, just a rate? It's
5: a rate. It doesn't matter what it's called, Your Honor. It's a rate, and even if it was unlawful... Well,
0: me. I mean, suppose I think it makes a difference what, it, what it's called. Is it, is it liquidated damages, or is it, is, it, is it just a different rate?
5: Your Honor, I think arguments can be made either way. I, my position would be it's a, it's a liquidated damages provision, but I think it's a rate. That's the important thing. It is a rate. You say it's both. Excuse me?
3: The credit regulations say one way of calculating liquid damages is what you have put in is the Bureau rate. And you have followed that way of calculating liquidated damages. So it was your answer to Justice Scalia that it's both?
5: My my answer is it doesn't matter. But my answer when put to the test of how would you characterize it, I would say it's a liquidated damages provision. I would also say it doesn't matter because it is a rate And the issue before this Court is the remedy. And Congress
1: has said what the remedy should be. I'm curious about the statute. Isn't there a statute here? I may not understand it correctly. But if I do, I I thought that there is a statute that governs the tariff. And it says that you can't have a tariff that allows a person credit, except, quote, under regulations of the commission. So the statute seems to say the only reason you could have this provision in the tariff is because, You will file, follow regulations of the commission. Now, I take it what the commission said is, you did follow regulations of the commission when you put that in. You did follow regulations of the commission when you accepted the freight on credit, but you did not follow the regulations of the commission When you sought damages, because you can't seek damages aggregate, and you have to present your bill within seven days, or something like that, under the regulations of the commission. But your honor, the question isn't whether the regulations were violated. The question is, what is the remedy for the violation? I'm asking about the statute. There is a difference between this and the other cases because here there is a statute that specifically governs. Now, maybe it doesn't. That's what I'm asking. This statute's language says.
5: One important thing about what's to be in the regulations. It says that the regulations are to be regulations, quote, preventing discrimination,
1: end quote. I mean, and
0: that that,
1: my, mine says governing the payment for transportation and service and, and, and preventing, preventing discrimination. Now, I take it this is governing the payment for transportation. Your Honor, there's no question that it's
5: governing the payment, but the question is what is the remedy? And the statutory language tells us not only that they govern payment, but that they are to be regulations, quote, preventing discrimination. And preventing discrimination is a judicially defined term. It was judicially defined in this Court's Texas and Pacific Railway Company decision versus Abilene Cotton in 1907. Before these this statute was enacted, and in that case, which was quoted with approval in the MCI. I and mean, their
1: regulations are unlawful because they don't deal with discrimination? They are, they are unlawful insofar as they are applied to create an, a judicial injunction
5: preventing the carrier from performing its statutory duty to collect the filed rate, and that's because. Just as in Maysland, there was a broad grant of power to the Commission to prohibit unreasonable practices, here we have a statute that uses the words preventing discrimination, and preventing discrimination are judicially defined words that mean adherence to the filed rate. So, what what the statute tells us is the one remedy that the ICC cannot provide for in its regulations is the remedy
0: of directing the carrier not to adhere to its tariff rate? And that's, that's simply because of the term. Uh, in, in, with the, one of the, the statute says one of the things is preventing discrimination. You, you place all that weight on that, those two words?
5: I don't just place all that weight on those two words, which have been defined, were defined by this court before those words were put in the statute, and the definition was reaffirmed. I also place weight on the absolutely clear legislative history which confirms that Congress meant what it said. The legislative history which was explained by this Court in the Commercial Metals case was that the credit rules of the Commission serve three basic purposes. One is they exist for the benefit of the carrier and the ICC in its brief in this Court doesn't deny that but here it's seeking to enforce the credit rules for the benefit of the shipper and the credit rules are also to serve the additional two purposes of preventing discrimination, which this Court has always held right through MCI last term, that there is an indissoluble unity. Those are the words of the Court in the Texas and Pacific case. Those are the words of the Court in MCI telecommunications, that there is an indissoluble unity between the carrier's duty to adhere to the filed rate and the statutory goal of preventing discrimination. In addition, the Court also explained in commercial metals that the other purpose of the credit rules is to protect the working, the capital structure of the carrier. Yet here, the credit rules are to be applied to prevent the carrier from recovering funds that it needs to pay its creditors. Well, why shouldn't the Commission have considerable discretion in interpreting its own regulations? Because under Chevron, Your Honor, the Commission has no discretion to interpret its regulations when Congress has specifically addressed the issue. And in this statute, which uses the words Preventing discrimination, which is a judicially defined term...
0: I still think that just puts a great deal of weight that it won't bear on two words in a fairly long statute.
5: Your Honor, I, I, can, only,
0: I can only refer to... You, I realize, uh, I, I simply disagree with you. And you also rely very heavily on maizlin. But there have been two cases since then which suggest that Maislin, you know, is not the be-all and end-all in this thing. This case is
5: a far more compelling case than Maislin. Maislin involved a statute that was unqualified. The Commission has the power to prevent unreasonable practices. And this Court said, if a carrier commits an unreasonable practice, the Commission can criminally prosecute the carrier. But what the Commission can't do, because of the utterly central filed-rate provisions, which are subject to civil and criminal penalties for disobedience to, what it can't do is create basically a, a co- agency made injunction against the carriers
4: enforcing the filed rate. Can I just clarify one thing that, are you contending that the credit regulations are invalid? Invalid as applied. Not on their face. What, are, there, what, what, are there any valid applications of the regulations? Absolutely. The historical application
5: of the credit rules, and the case law reflects this, is doing a carrier prospectively to not extend credit to shippers who won't pay the carrier's
4: filed rate, because these regulations... The only remedy is to uh, an injunction against future extensions... Absolutely not, Justice Stevens. Other remedies include the right to award reparations to any shipper who can show that the bureau rate, as applied, is unreasonable. I want to be sure I understand your You're not contending the regulations are invalid, merely the particular remedy... Is not authorized by the statute. Absolutely, that's exactly it. The, re- the regulations on their face do command conduct that the ICC can command. Yes, Your Honor. And, and your client has not obeyed that command.
5: Your Honor, that's not is that's that not accurate, Your Honor. My client is the bankruptcy estate of
4: Transcon Lines. Transcon Lines shipped. Transcon Lines bankruptcy estate shipped Over. no freight. Your are you contending that you complied with the credit regulations in all respects? I'm, no, I am not, Your Honor. I, my position is, tra- I, and
5: I can see, Transcon ship freight before its bankruptcy. It shipped no freight after its bankruptcy.
4: I can see that d- what, when... What remedy is available today for the violations of the credit regulations by the... The carriers. As to Transcon, there are multiple
5: remedies. First, there's an award of reparations. And the ICC says in its briefness court that those can't be awarded, but it said in its 1988 decision, reparations can be awarded if the Bureau rate
4: is unreasonable. In addition... But no, that, that's if the rate is for violating the credit regulation. What about with the reparations? Well, reparations, reparations are to the extent that the bureau, that
5: the rate being imposed is unlawful, reparations can be awarded. If this is an unlawful rate, right, let the Commission say so. It's simply not doing its job of saying Just what let's the rate. Let's leave about the
3: if. We, uh, okay. we, it's conceded that the invoices, when they were sent out, did not have the credit terms. It's conceded that the 90-day notice was not sent out. Okay, let's take those violations, Transcon, now, in bankruptcy court. What remedies? does the ICC have for its admittedly valid credit regulation? It can impose civil and criminal
5: penalties on everyone who knowingly participated in those violations. It can do that, and on Transcon as well. What it can't do... Impose a
4: penalty equal to the amount you seek to collect? Your Honor... The yes. penalties are a per day penalty. The penalties are a per day penalty, and it's. Well, I th- could have calculated per day penalty. It would bring out that result and say once you get to this uh, limit, uh, you can't collect anything more. Your, Your Honour,
5: I, I don't know whether it could under the law. I think that. I, I think w- one thing I would emphasize on that is that it just doesn't matter from the standpoint of my case. I don't. I don't care one way or the, well, the other.
4: Thing, the thing that I'm puzzled about is there's a valid regulation out there that's been violated, and the Commission says they want this remedy. And you're saying, well, there's some other remedy, but the other remedy that you describe is the functional equivalent of this one, as I understand it.
5: It's not, Your Honor, because under the Interstate Commerce Act, so long as the rate is in effect, there is a civil and criminal duty to comply. And the one remedy that they're asking for is what the statute commands they can't have. They can find Transcon. They can criminally prosecute the people who knowingly participate. The only one who's
3: here at the moment is the trustee. So, the ICC, practically, practically, what can the ICC do to say, here's our credit, regulations plainly violated, and we want to do something that will realistically enforce these rules.
5: Your Honor, I I don't uh, it seems to me that the ultimate sanction of the government for people who violate its rules is to throw them in jail and the people who used to run Transcon are all still around running another trucking company and it would have a salutary effect on the trucking industry if the ICC really wants to stop make people comply with its regulations to go out and prosecute them How about the the
3: trustee because of the bill they were sent out with average balances instead of aggregating, instead of making it separate. Your
5: Honor, that's First of all, the the regulations as interpreted by the ICC only apply to the following situation. And this is reflected in the decisions. A a trustee or somebody else sends out a whole slew of bills in an envelope and says, unless you pay these right away within the 90-day time period, I'm going to deny you the discount and impose the higher Bureau rate. There's no evidence in the record, and in fact it's the case, that that was never done in the Transcon case. All that happened in Transcon was Transcon ship freight before it went under it went into bankruptcy, and more than 90 days later, rate auditors were hired, and people were sued saying, you didn't pay the bills for the freight within 90 days, and therefore, the unequiv- by the unequivocal terms of Transcon's tariff, you must pay the Bureau
3: rate. The, which... the trustee gets the benefit of the suite that Transcon did. It had this higher rate, but it does, is not saddled with any of the even going to jail, that the that the Transcom people would have had.
5: Your Honor, if I was violating the credit regulations, I could go to jail. And if the, if the rate imposed is an unlawful rate, and the government concedes it is not an unlawful rate, the ICC could say, this is just too high. It's unlawful. You can't collect this money.
0: Mr. Gunport, why, why shouldn't, uh, shouldn't uh, it be considered impliedly part of, of, of any rate? Uh, whatever the Commission's regulations demand with regard to that rate. Why shouldn't it simply be considered part of the filed rate, even if you leave it out? It's it's implied that, uh, of course, the other conditions required by the Commission's regulations apply.
5: Because that argument proves too much, Justice Scalia. Under that argument, the ICC could promulgate regulations, just like it issued a negotiated rates policy in Maizlin, saying "No, no carrier shall collect its filed rate, period. And uh, Mason should have come out the other way. It should have come out the other way. If Trump had put
3: in, just copied into its tariff, the ICC's credit regulations, then
5: you would lose. I would be out of luck. I couldn't be here. What's interesting, Your Honor. I
4: thought it would be discriminatory as applied even in that case.
5: Your Honor, it would be, that tariff would be invalidated by the Court of Appeals on Hobbes Act Review, be under the, under then Judge Scalia's decision in Regular Common Carrier Conference versus United States in 1986, where the D.C. Circuit wrote, you can't have a tariff that really doesn't allow the shipper and the carrier to figure out what rate will really apply. And the Commission was aware of that decision at the time it issued its decision approving these credit regulations. It didn't want It knew that it couldn't have a tariff that had all these discretionary provisions in it. That's why it doesn't want to suspend this tariff, because there's lots of these out there. The carriers are using them. This isn't the only loss-of-discount tariff that's like this. The Commission is in here not because it wants to stop carriers from disobeying its credit regulations,
1: because there's lots of other... I'm still curious about Go back to the statute for one second. Regulations of the Commission governing payment for transportation and service, and you say, and preventing discrimination. Correct. Well, fine. The Commission says uh, we want notice given uh, of these things because otherwise big shippers with big lawyers know and little shippers with little lawyers don't. We want to have no aggregate because we think otherwise the people who uh, are customers of the trustee in bankruptcy will have to pay, the other guys won't. We want to be certain, whatever the third one was, that uh, you don't give uh, years later notice because we don't want them picking and choosing. All there to stop discrimination as well as transportation. What do what you? How do you respond to that? And I'm saying they can enforce
5: that any way they want to except in one way, and that is to sue the carrier to prevent it from Performing its statutory duty to
1: charge and collect its filed rate, unless even and even the, the court filed rate that discriminates, because it does discriminate, since it violates these regs. Uh, Your Honor, I would disagree
5: because the court has defined discrimination as being per se occurring when a carrier is disregarding its tariff rate. That is the teaching of the filed rate doctrine from Texas and Pacific Railroad versus Abilene-Cotton through MCI telecommunications. The rule of this Court has always been it is discriminatory when a carrier departs from its filed rate unless and until the ICC sets it aside. And in your hypothetical, Justice Breyer, the Commission could prosecute people for 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 willfully disobeying the credit regulations. It could also sue a carrier prospectively, saying you've got to send out these reminder notices, you have to let people know. And it could get contempt penalties for a violation of that injunction. What it couldn't do is to say, well, you violated our credit regulations, therefore, even though we've done nothing with your tariff, even though we concede that your tariff is lawful, Even though the the statutory provisions of the Act say you must charge and collect your tariff provision and you shall go to jail if you disregard it, we still want an injunction against you stopping you from doing what the statute commands. This is really a
3: case about remedy. It's not about... The credit regulations were written into the statute. You already told me if they were written into the tariff, you'd you'd have no case. Suppose they were written into the statute as distinguished from being regulations. Would well, that make a difference?
5: It would make no difference, Your Honor, under Davis versus Portland Seed. It would make no difference. A tariff can be blatantly unlawful on its face, and unless and until the ICC suspends it, rejects it, cancels it, does something like that, the carrier must comply. Now, I think, to go back to Justice Scalia's hypothetical, if I was the trustee and I found that there were some tariffs on file saying, go out and kill people, I would petition the ICC to strike that tariff. That's what would happen. but. I would be duty-bound to enforce it unless and until they set it aside. I'd immediately start an enforcement proceeding. But this is a case about remedy. And the one remedy that they cannot have under... You're a hard man, Mr. (laughs) Gumport. You better see counsel before you... Thank you. I can appreciate those remarks. But it is a case about remedy, and the one remedy that they cannot have is an injunction to set for directing a carrier permanently to disregard a filed rate. And, and Mr. Chief Justice, those words preventing discrimination, as construed by this court, are controlling. In Maisland, there were those words in the statute, and the court still found that the remedy could not be created that would force the
0: carrier to depart from its filed rate. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Gumport. Uh, Mr. Wallace, you have three minutes for me. Mr. Wallace, tell me why this is different from the case where uh, Justice Ginsburg asked about. uh, Even if the filed rate violated the statute, the filed rate doctrine would apply, and it'd have to be set aside before it could be collected. And you're coming in and saying, ah, but if it violates a regulation, that's different.
2: Well, Well, it doesn't seem to make much sense. That isn't the only thing that I'm saying. It... it, it the, the suggestion that the Commission could strike this provision is really a rather impractical one. There's nothing on its face that's incompatible with the statute or the regulation. This, uh, The liquidated damages provision, as it appears in the tariff, could have been lawfully enforced if the conditions that were not complied with had been complied with, so there was no basis for striking it from uh, the tariff. If the tariff had also said, and these uh, liquidated damages can be assessed on an aggregated basis, not merely on an individual basis, That would have been a provision that the Commission could have struck from the tariff. But what good would it have done the Commission to strike that from the tariff when, under uh, the Respondent's uh, submission, uh, the same result uh, could be reached anyway because uh, the liquidated damages provision itself remains in the tariff and that has to be enforceable regardless of violations of the uh, safeguards that were placed in the Commission's regulation. And I want to say in response to a question raised by Justice Ginsburg on uh, page 33A of the petition for certiorari appendix, the Court of Appeals discusses the meager case authority in the first paragraph on that page that existed um, about efforts to try to include liquidated damages provisions before they uh, were authorized by regulation. The Commission took the position in this litigation that those cases, striking down those efforts to have them solely as a creature of tariff, uh, were correctly decided the, they were Only one of the district court decisions was reported, uh, but um, that was all there was on the subject. The great controversy that took place over a period of three years in the late 80s would have been rather meaningless if uh, carriers uh, had been free uh, to prescribe this for themselves in their tariff filings without authorization uh, from the commission. That's what the controversy in the rulemaking was about. Thank you, Mr. Wallace. The case is submitted.
1: The honorable court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.